Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning I've opened my Bible to the 11th chapter of Isaiah. We've been looking at some of the various names of Jesus over the past few weeks, and I want us to consider the name Christ the King, God being our helper this morning. And I'll begin by reading Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 10. Isaiah chapter 11 and the first verse. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand as an ensign for the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. As the Old Testament unfolds, it is increasingly clear that the coming Messiah will come from David's family line. Therefore, he will be, like David, the ultimate and final king. This is the reason that the New Testament begins, admittedly in an anticlimactic way, with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And over and again, the New Testament calls him the son of David. Interestingly, after he gives that genealogy at the very beginning, he immediately transitions into the narrative of his birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. It says, after saying that he was the son of David, that is, he's the king's descendant. And that's the reason that his Davidic ancestry is frequently referenced in the New Testament epistles. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the apostle says, concerning his son Jesus Christ, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Why does it call him the son of David, the seed of David? 2 Timothy 2.7 says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised again from the dead according to my gospel. And in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 22, it gives the Messiah this title, I am the root and the offspring of David. Now, why is the Davidic ancestry of Jesus so important? Well, all of these references to Jesus' connection to King David are intended to emphasize that Jesus Christ is the penultimate king. He is the coming king as the Old Testament predicts him, 
and he is the king at his birth, as we read in Matthew 2.2, 2, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, I love to think about Christ the king. In America, we're not as familiar with a king as we are with a three-tiered system of government. You know, we have a president and a congress and a judiciary. There's a balance of powers. But you know, ancient civilizations often had a king who had absolute authority or power in one person. There wasn't a balance between three different groups. A king was the sovereign. Now, you know what the word sovereign means, don't you? It means there's nothing beyond him. The buck stopped here. (laughs) There's not a higher power. There's no possibility of an appeal. And interestingly, Jesus is not a president or a prime minister, but his political office is he is the sovereign. He's king. And that's the reason that it says there shall come forth in our text a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That is, here's the ancestral line. Jesse through David. So he tells us that the family of Jesse will bring forth a little stem. In fact, he calls him the capital B-R-A-N-C-H, the branch. And that's an interesting messianic title in the Old Testament. It's mentioned besides here four other times in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, 5, Jeremiah 33, 15, Zechariah 3, 8, and Zechariah 6, 12. And it's alluded to in Isaiah 53, verse 2, when it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now I want you to think about a lake bed where it hasn't rained for a long time. I came from West Texas on the high plains, and it's a very arid, desert-like climate. And there isn't a lot of water. And if there is a river or a lake, in the times of drought, you can see the cracked little mosaic pattern of the soil. You've probably seen an arid lake bed, perhaps under drought, and that it was cracked, it was dry ground. Now, you wouldn't expect to find a tender plant suddenly emerging from such a dry place. But he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Suddenly, where there appears no hope, life emerges. That's the idea. And you see, that's the thought in our text. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem or the stump of Jesse. Now, if you've ever cut down a tree and you left the stump in the ground. You know that there's a potential, as long as the stump is there, for it to regenerate, for a new tree to start to grow, unless you dig the roots up. And he says, the stump of Jesse, it's a hopeless scene. That's the thought here. There shall come forth a shoot or rod out of the stump of Jesse. And what he's saying in this passage is that the coming of the new king from the Davidic line is a sudden emergence from an apparently hopeless scene. In other words, there was nothing left of the Davidic line. There was nothing left of Judah. And this passage speaks of the small and lowly beginnings of the Messianic king, of the coming king. Let's talk about the king's lowly beginnings this morning. And you see it in this idea. There shall come forth a shoot or rod out of the stem or the stump of Jesse. Suddenly new life springs forth. And a branch, capital B, shall grow out of his roots. 
Obviously, in the Old Testament, some 700 years before the coming of Jesus, this verse suggests the messianic hope. It serves as a reminder to God's people that their king was coming. And I can just imagine in the days of the Old Testament when Isaiah lived and the people had seen their kings fail the nation over and over again. You know how many evil kings there were in the northern kingdom of Israel and how many bad kings there were even in the southern kingdom of Judah. Over and over again, you have kings like Ahab, who was not a godly leader. And you have kings like Ahaz, who actually offered his own child to the idol Molech as a burnt offering, as a human sacrifice. Can you imagine a king offering his own child burning him in the fire to a pagan idol god. It's mind-boggling. And you have these kings that worship the queen of heaven, Astarte, Ishtar, and they are flirting, if you please, with the pagan religions of the nations around them, something God had expressly forbidden them to do when he gave them the land of Canaan. He said, do not mix and mingle, do not worship their gods. You see, the kings led the people astray. I mean, first there was King Saul, and he was a megalomaniac. And then there was David, who was a godly king. But he wasn't perfect, was he? I mean, he had Uriah killed so he could take Uriah's wife. It's just mind-boggling some of the things that he did. But yet David was a man after God's own heart, and God blessed him in spite of his feet of clay. And then there was Solomon, who married many strange women. Israel was at the zenith of its wealth and prosperity during Solomon's reign. They had 40 years of peace, but Solomon himself was a man who couldn't seem to sustain a godly path. Now, he was a wise man, but he was very wealthy, and he was very much involved in secular affairs, and he married over 700 concubines, and he had 100 wives. He married many outlandish women. That's a Bible word, outlandish women. That means out of the land. And after he had basically introduced syncretism into the nation, syncretism's the worship of God together with an idol, you know, more than one God. After he had said, you can worship others, then after him, that idolatrous tendency seemed to snowball after Solomon was the king. And so it was a rarity for there to be a godly king. In the history of the nation after David, the kings led the people astray. The rulers of the people led the people astray. And can't we identify with political leaders in our day that are not always what we had hoped that they would be? In fact, they implement policies and practices that cause the people to mourn. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, when the godly bear rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people mourn. It's the long story of human history that kings have failed. Leaders have failed. Whether you want to talk about prime ministers or presidents, leaders have failed the people. And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. But here's the point. As history unfolds, the Jews began to despair. In David's line, all of the hopes and dreams that they had were disappointed. But suddenly the prophet comes on the scene and he says, there's coming another king from David's line. And he is going to rise 
when you least expect it and in a way that seems unimpressive and unspectacular at the first, like a little blade of a tender plant just coming through the cracked, parched earth of a lake bed as a root out of dry ground, as a little shoot from a dry stump. He's going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, but it will happen. God is still in control, and he will raise the messianic king. That's the idea, okay? And I want you to notice the king's lowly beginnings. There's a verse in Zechariah 9.9. He's another prophet, Old Testament prophet. And you see, these prophets were anticipating a brighter day. There's a note of hope. There are two basic motifs or themes in the prophets. There's a negative theme and there's a positive theme. The prophets brought a message of judgment and they brought a message of restoration. So there's a message of doom and there's a tone or a note of hope. And then you see it in Isaiah, don't you? Listen to Isaiah 40 verse 1. Here's a verse every old Baptist probably has heard many times. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Is that a note of judgment or a note of hope? hope. But listen to the last verse of Malachi chapter 4 in the Old Testament, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. God said, I'm coming to judge and to curse the world. Is that a note of judgment or hope? That's a note of judgment, right? You see that? And this double motif or theme is all through the prophets. You see Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, he's explaining why God is going to judge the nation by sending them to Babylon. But starting in chapter 40, he suddenly brings this note of restoration. Comfort ye, for I've forgiven your iniquities. Your sin is pardoned, and the warfare is over. And behold your God. He's in sovereign control. What a wonderful thought that is. And you see it, my friends, in Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied right after the Babylonian captivity. The nation had been slaves in Babylon for 70 years. And now they've come home and Zechariah is one of God's prophets after the exile to encourage the people to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And he brings a message of hope and restoration. For he says in chapter 9 of Zechariah verse 9, Behold thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, watch this, lowly, riding upon an ass, the colt, the foal of an ass. Now that doesn't sound like the kind of king that they wanted. They wanted a king like Napoleon who rode upon a great stallion, a mighty steed. But here's a king that's coming onto the scene, riding a little beast of burden, a little donkey, upon this unimpressive kind of mount. This king is coming lowly. I want to tell you the thing that surprises so many people when they think of King Jesus is that when he arrived on the scene of this world, my friends, he had very humble and lowly beginnings, like a tender shoot out of a dry stump. It's not impressive. It's not spectacular. It's not exciting. And most of the time when we think of political leaders, we think of fanfare, right? Pomp and ceremony. Have you ever watched an inauguration of a president? It's, I mean, it's a regal affair. There's great decoration. They've gone to great expense to erect this stage and all of these adornments. I mean, there is ceremony, there is pomp, there are trumpets, the military people in attendance are dressed out in their dress blues. 
and it has the best of music and it is very formal. It is very impressive. What about a king's palace? You'd expect a king's palace to be very ornate, great wealth there. The protocol, the etiquette at the palace is very closely monitored, very well defined. It is it's a very authoritative place. But notice, here's a king who comes onto the scene and it's not impressive at all. Usually when a prince is born, when someone from the royal line is brought into the world, it's all over the news, right? And it's celebrated. All of the networks carry it. Look, a baby was born to the king, the prince, who's in line to the throne. A baby was born to his family. And we all hear about it, and, and people get excited about that. I never really understood it. But I'll tell you, here's a king that is born. It's a very lowly beginning. Thy king cometh unto thee lowly, riding upon an ass's colt. Lowly. You see how strange that is? The message of the Christian gospel is foreign to the way people ordinarily think. And unless you're able to think about it in spiritual terms, it's going to mean very little to the carnal-minded person in this world. The carnal mind says, well, so another baby is born. Okay, well, he's going to sit on the throne, but it's not very impressive to me. I've got better things to do. I'm telling you, my friends, the most important figure in history came into this world in a very inauspicious and a very clandestine way. He had a very lowly beginning. Think about the parents to whom he was born. He was born to a blue-collar carpenter named Joseph and a little teenage girl, virgin, named Mary, and they were espoused or engaged to be married. And suddenly, this young teenage girl, probably 16, 17, was found to be with child. And I can imagine Joseph's perplexity. And as he thinks about it, he plans to have her put away privately, that is, to divorce her, not in a way that would embarrass her, but he feels that she has been unfaithful to him. And his heart is heavy. And it says, while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is not from another man, but it's of the Holy Ghost. This is a supernatural conception. Luke one thirty five explains how it happened. The Holy Ghost came upon her, and the power of the highest overshadowed or enveloped her. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, God manifests himself in the flesh in the form of a little baby born to the Jewish virgin Mary. And Mary was not a very reputable person. In fact, many people thought that she was immoral. One of the criticisms during the public ministry of Jesus that frequently resurfaces is that he had been born of fornication. And Mary was thought to be immoral, but she was willing to bear the stigma on her reputation for the privilege of bringing the messianic king into the world. But she herself was not a real upstanding person as far as the world was concerned. I don't mean she wasn't moral. She wasn't godly. She wasn't, in fact, you want to talk about how godly she is. Read her song of praise called The Magnificent in Luke chapter 1. When she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord and read how many references there are to Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and Old Testament verses of Scripture. This young girl was very skilled. She knew her Bible. 
She read the Old Testament. She says, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. I am your servant girl, Lord. It's an honor to do your bidding. What a humble attitude she has. So the point is that he was a blue-collar worker, a carpenter, and she was, if you please, a young peasant girl, a teenager. And God chose them, as it were, to rear the Messiah. Yes, my friends, Jesus came to lowly parents, just common people. The place he was born You see, he must have been born in Hong Kong or Tokyo or London or Paris or New York City or Chicago. No, he was born in a two-bit village called Bethlehem, which probably doesn't even deserve the title of a city. It was so small and insignificant. In fact, Micah 5.2 says, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, the little town of Bethlehem was smaller than the many other cities in Judah, but yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler or king in Israel. Notice this king comes on the scene differently than what you would expect a king to come on the scene. He comes born to lowly parentage. He comes born in a little disreputable village. He was reared in Nazareth, and it had a bad reputation. In fact, Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, it had a bad reputation. And then the circumstances of his birth. Do you remember the story? When Joseph and Mary had gone to be enrolled in the census, Caesar had decreed that all the Jews should be registered. And so they have to make this journey, Joseph and Mary, from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, which is the city of David, That's their voting precinct. They have to go back to make sure that their names are on the list and that they pay the taxes that their family owes. But it's a very inconvenient time to make this trip because Joseph's wife, Mary, is very close to delivery. But they make the trip. And by the way, they didn't get plane tickets from Nazareth to fly down to Bethlehem probably 50, 60 miles. They didn't get plane tickets. They didn't load up in the SUV and make her a comfortable place in the back seat to rest and recline. They had to travel on foot and by donkey. And can you imagine a a woman very, very close to delivery making this trip? It would be perilous. But as they get there, they knocked on the door at the local inn But the sign read, no vacancy. There was no room for them in the end. And the time came for her to deliver, but they couldn't find a place. And it says, she brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger, which means a feeding trough for cattle. Evidently, they're in a, what we would call a barn. And she has given birth to her child and laid him in a manger. I think it's interesting the king did not have a velvet bassinet or a linen crib, but he has a wooden feeding trough, smelly feeding trough, probably lined with hay, where animals dwell. And the king has made his entrance to lowly parents in a little two-bit village called Bethlehem. There's not room for him and for them in the hotel, in the inn, and 
he's actually laid in a manger. And the first visitors to come see him were not dignitaries and representatives of government, but some lowly shepherds. You can read in Luke chapter 2 about the shepherds who were out watching their flocks by night, keeping watch over them in the fields. And shepherding was not a reputable occupation. In fact, shepherds were considered to be the lowest of the low. These people were out there in nature. They had to stay with their flocks. They couldn't go home each night, punch a clock at five o'clock and go home to their wife and children. They had to stay with their flocks. So many of the time, these fellows were not even attached with families. Much of the time, these fellows were not wealthy. Their payment was not anything to be coveted. They were considered to be rascals. I mean, when they had a little free time, these guys didn't have a good reputation. But it was the shepherds that the angel appeared to and sang glory to God in the highest. And they said, let us go now and see this thing that has come to pass. And it says, they came and saw the king. Shepherds, the first attenders on the birth of Jesus were lowly shepherds. By the way, my friends, not only did Jesus have an inauspicious and unimpressive start in this world, but his whole ministry was characterized by this humble character. Isaiah 42.2 says that the Messiah will not lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He won't seek to get new followers on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram and and claim to be very popular. He won't be an influencer. He, he will not lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's not seeking to be a celebrity. In fact, he's willing to live in obscurity, under the radar. And a bruised reed, it says in that passage, Isaiah 42, verse 3, he will not break, nor smoking flax he will not quench. In other words, he's going to deal with the throwaways of society. Now see, he came on the scene very silently, under the radar. The world at large never missed a beat. When Jesus made his entrance onto the stage of history, when the king was born, the world basically didn't know about it. Just a few lowly shepherds knew about it and came to visit the babe in Bethlehem. And then, my friends, he carried out his ministry by not drawing attention to himself. He wasn't seeking to build his own empire, seeking to be more and more popular. He didn't want to be a household name. In fact, the people he hung around with were the outcasts of society. He was called the friend of publicans and sinners. You see, here's a king unlike any king you've ever met. He's lowly. He's humble. He's not focused on himself. The king of all kings arrived on the scene in a very humble way. And he carried out his life and ministry in a humble way. In fact, he took a special interest in the poor and lowly. He said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Now, who's he trying to attract to himself? He didn't say, come to me, you that have plenty of money in the bank. Come to me, you that are popular and well-known and celebrities. He didn't try to rub shoulders with the elite of the day. He called for the poor and the lowly, the humble and the burdened. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And interestingly, he didn't even have a palatial estate or palace to live in. In fact, Matthew 8.20 says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. 
As far as we know, once he started his public ministry, Jesus did not have a permanent residence. He was homeless. There's an interesting passage at the last verse of John 7 and the first verse of John 8. John 7:53 says the disciples all went to their own home at the end of this day. John 8 verse 1 says, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why didn't he go home? Because he didn't have a home. And did you know that everything that Jesus seemed to have at different points in his life was borrowed? Everything was borrowed. He borrowed his crib from some barn animals. Simon Peter's residence in Capernaum became the base of his ministry operations in that city. Peter's fishing boat on one occasion became Jesus' makeshift pulpit as he sat in the boat off right offshore and preached to the throngs on the seaside, on the shore. He borrowed a boat for a pulpit. He borrowed a house for a ministry headquarters. He borrowed a donkey to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem right before he died. Remember? He said, go into the city and you'll find a colt tied up, a colt on which never man sat. Loose him, and if, he, if the owner asks you, why are you taking him? Say, the master has need of him. And it's, of course, that's what happened. And he somehow said, oh, okay, that satisfied him. And it's just miraculous. By the way, even though that, the donkey belonged to that man, it ultimately belonged to the Lord, who said, all the beasts of the forest and of the field are mine. Right? Everything ultimately belongs to him. And then, my friends, he borrowed his tomb to be buried in. He borrowed a donkey to ride on, make his kingly entry. He borrowed a fishing boat as his pulpit to preach to the multitudes on the shore. He borrowed his crib when he was born. He borrowed Simon Peter's house as his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. And even when he came to die, he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. He didn't even own his own tomb. You say, why didn't he take the steps necessary to prepare his funeral arrangements? Because he wasn't going to be there very long. He came out of that tomb. And Jesus really never put his roots down too deeply in this world. Thirty-three and a half years is all he lived. And it was confined to a little stretch of ground that we know as the Bible lands. And he didn't go about to try to promote himself or try to draw attention to himself. He didn't try to become a celebrity and get a huge following. Even the people that attended his ministry were the humble poor. Mark 12, 37 says the common people heard him gladly. Common people, not the elite. And by the way, his humiliation, his humble and lowly life ended in a very humiliating way as he died a slave's death on Calvary's rugged cross, on the town garbage heap, crucified, suspended between heaven and earth. He lost on purpose. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, that word means slave, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, Jesus didn't even die of natural causes. He didn't die from a heart attack or old age. Or he didn't die of an accident. He submitted to death. That's a mind-boggling mystery in its own right. It's a miracle that he lost on purpose. He couldn't die. God can't die. But God manifest in the flesh submitted to death. He put himself under death's authority. He voluntarily laid his life down. 
He died for you and for me. My friends, how low can you go? And by the way, it wasn't an easy death. He didn't just go to sleep one night. He died the most ignominious kind of death imaginable. Even the death of the cross, says Philippians chapter 2. Now that was a form of capital punishment reserved for the most serious offenders in society. Jesus was willing, even though he's the most perfect man who's ever lived, he took the place of the worst of the worst for you and for me. And he died by crucifixion, a very agonizing, physically painful kind of death. And he was the subject of ridicule and mocking and reproach. All the shame. He despised the shame of the cross. But my beloved, he knew that through the cross there was joy on the other side. And for the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross, despising the shame. And now he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Christ the King, who came in such a lowly way and humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross, has been lifted way up. I summarize and close this morning everything I've been saying with this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's a good definition of grace. That though he was rich... Think about him as God, a very God from all eternity past. Though he was rich, and he was in heaven before he came to this earth, my beloved, he was the object of angelic praise. A thousand worlds were his. He needed nothing beyond or outside of himself. But though he was rich, he divested himself of all of that. He, he became poor. He voluntarily assumed our poverty, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. You've heard of rags-to-riches stories? <laughs> well, here's a riches-to-rags story that has no parallel. Though he was rich, yet he took your place in the poverty of our sins, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And my beloved, today we're in his kingdom. The king has subjects, people who are trying to do his bidding and serve him. That's what the church is, his kingdom. Heaven will be this perfectly, but now we have a small-scale replica of it in the church, the kingdom of God. My beloved, may I say, to serve Christ the King, though he's not popular and it's a lowly and humble kind of service in life, I want to tell you there's not a greater privilege. Here's a king who takes care of his subjects.